Okay, hello everyone. Thank you for joining us at the Institute today. I'm Emma Norris and I'm the Director of Research at the Institute. I'm delighted to welcome you here for a keynote speech by Rupert McNeil, the Chief Government People Officer and Head of the Civil Services Human Resources Function. Now this is the latest in a series of events uh, that the Institute is running, looking at the professionalism agenda um, in Whitehall and we're very grateful to Oracle um, for sponsoring this series of events and indeed the Institute's broader work in this area. Now, Whitehall's functions and professions agenda has been a really important topic for the Institute for many years now, um, from the importance of building up uh, specialist capability to looking at how people can have a career and reach the top through HR, operational delivery, finance, um, as well as policy. Um, in September last year, we published Professionalising Whitehall, which was a stock take of how the civil services efforts to professionalise activities like HR, finance um, and so on was going. And in that report, we described HR as one of the most mature specialisms and um, which was making particularly strong progress in areas like talent management. Um, so before we come to a keynote speech from Rupert to tell us how Whitehall is going about modernising HR, I'd like to welcome Yazad Dalal to the stage. Um, Yazad's Head of Strategy for um, Oracle's Human Capital Management, and he's going to provide some opening remarks. Yazad. Good morning. I think it's a very apt topic because the choice of words I find is always very important, and when we think about forging something, perhaps you think about a crucible, you think about molten metal, uh, and the ability to change and, and bend it into something different and unique. And I think it's a very apt analogy for, for this event because, to me, it's a, a great way of talking about transformation. And I just want to share a few remarks before I, I pass it over to uh, Rupert. I think it's important to think about the history of, of where we're coming from as HR leaders. For decades, the HR department's been seen as a back office function, a cost center, uh, managing sort of the typical administrative tasks, compensation, benefits, personnel. In the last 20 years, we've seen a very dramatic change. And for a long time, HR chiefs typically would report to a functional C-suite leader, the COO, the CFO. And often, we would complain that we lack real influence in the C-suite. And this is in the private sector, but it applies to government as well. Today, that's changed. The senior HR leader in an organization most often reports to the CEO. They act as a key advisor. They often present to the board of directors. When companies look for new CHROs, now they're focusing on not finding administrative leaders, but people with a higher level ability in leadership and strategy. So it's moved away from that admin function. You may be familiar with a research study that was conducted a few years ago by Dave Ulrich, a professor in the United States, and Corn Ferry, who wanted to understand this better. Let me share with you a little bit about what they found. I'll quote liberally from their report, if you don't mind. So in this report, they said, how do we, let's determine first the importance of the CHRO uh, compared to the other C-suite positions. And so they used salary. They looked at the top 10%, the top decile of earners in each of those roles. Then they averaged that compensation. And it was no surprise. The highest paid executives were the CEOs and the COOs. But CHROs were next. Now, mind you, this is in the largest public companies in their survey. But CHROs were third, with an average base pay, again, this is the top 10% of earners, of 574000 US dollars per year. Do you find that surprising? I found it very surprising. That's 33% more than CMOs, the chief marketing officer, who, by the way, are the lowest earners on the list. So Ulrich said... This makes sense in a way because great CHROs are very, very highly paid because they're very hard to find. They also studied some proprietary assessments that were administered by Corn Ferry to C-suite candidates over, over a decade. They looked at 14 aspects of leadership. They grouped them into three categories. They said, let's look at leadership. Let's look at emotional competency. Let's look at um, thinking style, they called it, which is how people uh, approach situations in private. And then they assessed the prevalence of those traits across all of the C-suite that they were studying. And their conclusion was that except for the COO of a company, the executive whose traits were most similar to the chief executive officer was the head of HR. Do you find this to be counterintuitive? Would you have predicted that? I think it's fascinating. More companies now consider CHROs when they look to fill a CEO position. So in a modern economy, they're saying attracting talent creating the right organizational structure, 
building the right culture are essential for driving strategy. These are the things we're good at. These are the things that CHROs, senior HR leaders, are excelling in. And let me share with you two fantastic examples of prominent CEOs who actually spent a portion of their career leading the HR function. You may be familiar with Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors. She served as a vice president of HR for 18 months before taking the top job. You may have heard of Anne Mulcahy, who was the CEO of Xerox Corporation in the mid-2000s. And she ran that company's HR operations for several years in uh, the decade prior. And it's no coincidence, by the way, that both of them are women. According to the researchers' data, 42% of high-performing CHROs are female, which is more than double the share, for instance, in the chief marketing officer position. And by the way, doesn't that mean that if more companies envision CHROs as potential CEOs, the number of female CEOs should dramatically increase? Now, the subject of this research study was the private sector, but uh, I want to share with you in a moment some thoughts for the world of government. Let me give you one more example of, of a leader that I think is interesting, not necessarily a household name. If you're familiar with Bernard Fontana, he's served as the CEO of a Swiss cement company. I think now he's the CEO of a French nuclear energy company. But prior to that, he was the head of HR for ArcelorMittal, 320,000 employees global mining and steelmaking, and what he says is interesting. Leadership is about transforming an institution, and if you want to have a sustainable transformation, you need to develop leaders who will continue the journey after you. HR is an essential part of that kind of generational leadership, and we need CEOs with that characteristic, the ability to develop people and generate new leaders. So my question is, how will government ensure that they have the right capability to meet current and future needs? How do we ensure that we are across emerging technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence that will define the way we work in the near future? The business that I work in, Oracle, in our HCM cloud offering, which is where I spend all of my time, these are the same questions that we're asking every day. How do we prepare for that future, not just through technology, but by focusing on our users, by focusing on the employee experience through human-centered design processes so we can deliver the best customer experience to those we serve? How do we change our processes such that technology reveal, removes obstacles and take up the mantle of those mundane activities so that across the organization, our people can focus on the human qualities, like warmth, like empathy, like resilience, that make the employee experience richer and empower our people to render the best possible services that power the nation. I'm pleased to introduce a leader whose public words and mission are the basis for a lot of my remarks and whose goals include building a more inclusive organization and include increasing HR representation at the top. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rupert McNeil. Yazadema, uh, thank you very much for those uh, remarks. Um, ju and just to say, uh, it's what, what I'm going to be doing, I hope, is giving you a bit of a progress report, actually, on things that we've talked about uh, before in this room uh, as we go on a journey within, uh, within the civil service and UK public services on um, how we uh, think about capability, capacity, and people. And the uh, the role of uh, Oracle as one of our leading technology partners is very important in that. Um, the technology that is now available to us is making a massive difference in what we can do, what line managers can do, and how people can actually uh, drive their careers. And uh, I'm very interested to know what feedback we have and questions from this audience, because it's definitely, through the work of the, uh, of the IFG, uh, informed how we have uh, how we've thought about things and continue to do so. So uh, I last spoke here in uh, July, uh, and I spoke about the fact that we needed to attract the very best people into uh, the civil service um, and to get the right people into uh, the right jobs. And I also talked about our commitment to making sure that the civil service is diverse and inclusive. 
and about supporting the exceptional leadership and commitment to public service, um, which we've come to expect and should expect from senior civil servants. And since then, a lot has happened. We've been listening to our staff, to our partners, to commentators and critics, um, and we've been making some very far-reaching changes. So it's great to be able to talk about those changes, and particularly uh, how we're thinking about recruitment, new ways to recruit, um, and the development of flexible but robust career pathways for all civil servants. So uh, since, um, since I took up uh, the role of Chief People Officer in January 2016, um, I've been joining a movement that was there, uh, had, was already well underway um, under um, the late uh, Sir Jeremy Haywood's leadership and across the permanent sector community about making sure that we were making um, the civil service a, um, a great place to work and attracting people with experience and backgrounds from uh, all parts of uh, the UK and all walks of life. Um, and that, uh, not only is that because that's the, the, the right thing to do, I believe, and it's, uh, uh, that's very important, but also just an operational necessity to make sure that when we look at the complex task of EU exit, um, which I should say is a massive accelerator, actually, for much of what we're doing, um, the, the opportunities and challenges of technical innovation, of automation, as the other I've mentioned, um, and just achieving the government's outcomes as they evolve... Um, we, uh, we need to make sure that we're doing that and attracting and retaining uh, the best people. And it's a duty of the HR function, uh, which I'm very privileged to lead, to make sure uh, that we can do that in the most effective way and fundamentally make sure the workforce is representative of the population of the UK, the people that we're serving. And it's a very fundamental part of our vision of a brilliant civil service to create effective leaders, uh, skilled people, and make sure those people have a great place to work, which doesn't just mean the job they're doing now, but also how their roles will evolve and the career opportunities uh, they have. And all that will help ensure that we have uh, great outcomes for the UK. Um, and I will start with inclusion, which is um, our ambition to be uh, the UK's most inclusive employer uh, in, uh, by 2020. Um, and that's something that we're very passionate about achieving, and we know that it's a very... Uh, challenging journey, not least in how we would know when we had uh, got there. And uh, I'll, I'll mention some of the work we're doing on that and the convening we're doing uh, later. Um, and we want the civil service to basically be an environment in which background really is uh, irrelevant and everyone can be valued and flourish. And I'm really pleased that our workforce data shows that we are becoming more diverse. Representation of ethnic minorities and disabled staff has continued to increase since 2010, which is when we sort of measure this journey from. But the progress is incremental, and we've still got uh, some way to go. And uh, we've got to keep that momentum up um, and make sure that diversity is reflected across all departments and all, uh, and all professions. How are we doing that? Well, we're, um, we're looking very, uh, very carefully, for example, at how do we target underrepresentation under from two particular groups which are very underrepresented in the senior civil service, um, and that is uh, people from ethnic minority backgrounds and also uh, people, with, um, uh, people with disabilities. And so our civil service uh, diversity and inclusion strategy, which we launched in October 2017, sets out the commitment to take action on that and to increase representation uh, from those groups and also to look at inclusion uh, in parallel with that, to make sure we've got a culture so that when people arrive, they're in an environment which um, also uh, gets the uh, best out of them and gives them the best opportunities. So we've taken a number of actions. One is, um, and I just, uh, there's a, a wide spectrum, it's laid out in the, uh, in the strategy, but I just want to pick a few which show the ways in which we're looking at this. One is um, looking at new ways of thinking about inclusion and new categories of groups. And uh, we have just set up the first um, arrangement for a permanent secretary champion for faith and belief. Um, we marked into Faith Week uh, earlier this month with a, a range of events, and Claire Moriarty is the, is the champion of that. That's a very important uh, new group which uh, we felt needed uh, a voice across the uh, civil service, and, and we, responded, uh, we responded to that. And, and that's actually part of the inclusion agenda of making sure people feel they can actually talk about something that's a very fundamental part of their identity um, at work. We've also um, 
set, put in place uh, civil service-wide targets at departmental level for uh, diversity in the senior civil service, particularly for those two groups of uh, people from ethnic minorities and people with disabilities, and that's been a very important uh, step. Very important step also in how we have done it, which is starting with departments and asking departments what they feel is a reasonable ambition to take. And out of that, aggregating the numbers which you can see on gov.uk and the public domain uh, on that. Um, and that drives action in many areas. And I'm very happy to talk about that later. But we also uh, need to focus on all the other areas where uh, we need to make sure we have diversity. We are making, I think, uh, progress on representation of women. Um, in 2010, just over 35% of senior civil servants were women. Fast forward to March 2018, and that figure was over 43%. And in 2017 to 18, 47% of newly appointed uh, senior civil servants were, uh, were women. Um, that's not where finally, I think, and we hope it would end up, but we think we have made uh, significant progress on that. But we mustn't, uh, again, resolve from pushing on that uh, very hard. One of the ways that we are particularly interested in focusing on uh, bringing more women into senior roles, is also looking at the balance of what uh, parents can do. And this is, a, this is a, a very important part of making sure that we've got um, a structure which allows people to uh, integrate their lives effectively with their careers as a whole over, over multiple years. So um, an important part of that is the way in which we look at shared parental leave, um, the way in which we're looking at maternity uh, and adoption pay arrangements. Um, Topping up statutory pay minima for both parents, very important to, to make sure that that is uh, equally, uh, equally spread. And also making sure that people have good access to the information that will allow them to take these very important uh, life, uh, lifestyle planning decisions around, um, around when they will uh, take parental leave. To continue to be able to attract the best talent uh, from across society, we're also supporting professions and functions across the civil service to launch recruitment campaigns that take a more flexible and practical approach to recruitment and attraction. Um, we're increasingly recruiting through our functions, um, whether it's through commercial or digital data and technology as examples of that, and also making sure there is a very clear functional uh, element in all, uh, in all recruitment. We talk, understandably, about the fast stream, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that later, and we're very proud of it and what it has allowed us to do and the techniques it's allowed us to test. But alongside uh, that, we have direct entry, we have apprenticeships, internships, and programmes for people returning to work after extended times out um, for uh, caring responsibilities uh, and others. And also, increasingly, making sure that we target people through internships, and uh, other programmes to bring people in from underrepresented groups. And on top of that, um, since we, uh, we last talked about that here, we've also uh, launched the careers website, the first time the civil service has had that, which is a really a, a, an opportunity to demystify um, what it means to be a civil servant, to attract a broader pool of candidates, showcasing all of the professions and the departments and the opportunities available to people in the civil service. That's a fully accessible site. I hope you will all go and have a look at it uh, and uh, give us your feedback on it. Um, but we believe it's a very important way of attracting people who might otherwise have been deterred from thinking about joining and knowing about the very uh, wide range of opportunities that are there. And in fact, since it was launched in July, we've had 90,000 visits uh, to the site, and that's, uh, and that's growing. And that sits alongside um, a quiet but very fundamental revolution in the way in which we do uh, recruitment in the civil service. Um, there, it's always good to come to an organisation and look at what are the um, uh, almost iconically uh, hated uh, features of the, um, of the system. And one of those uh, which we committed to, uh, to change was competency-based recruitment. And competency-based recruitment, um, which had uh, been introduced a number of years ago, which served a very important purpose of raising the consistency um, and quality of selection of the civil service had reached a point where we felt it was um, too narrow, not allowing trust to line managers to choose the right people, not broad enough in terms of its um, 
the dimensions that it was looking at in individuals. Um, and so we responded to uh, feedback from line managers, from candidates, um, from other vacancy holders, and from the HR profession, very importantly in this, uh, to say how could we actually improve this process. Um, and particularly giving people the flexibility in areas like recruiting uh, specialists and acknowledging aspects like experience um, and deep technical expertise where that was relevant. And it increasingly raised the issue that we were falling behind the way in which other organisations were, uh, were recruiting and doing selection. So we have developed success profiles. Again, all the material on this is on uh, gov.uk, so do, very, very helpful for any feedback on it as you look at it. Um, we believe that it's a very fair and impartial imp approach. We have to make sure, of course, that we're constantly uh, living up to that standard. But we believe this is, this is fairer because it's uh, more inclusive and will attract a more, uh, diverse, uh, a more diverse pool. It looks at a broad range of elements. It looks at strengths. It looks at ability uh, measured in an appropriate way uh, in each case. It looks at experience uh, and it looks at technical skills. Um, and uh, we believe that uh, what that means is that we are going to be focusing on individuals' natural talents, uh, their strengths, and encouraging people to come to, um, to the selection process uh, presenting their full self and doing things which will motivate them and which they will enjoy. The strengths-based selection aspect is um, probably one of the most important changes. Um, and what that really requires at the start of the, uh, the interview, um, we will set a reference. We set a reference in question, which is about something which we know the candidate is going to be enthusiastic about. And that referencing point then allows us to judge that, that the, the hiring manager to judge that as we move through, uh, through the interview and take a view about fit for the role um, and uh, how, the, um, how the person will actually perform um, in the job. It's one dimension of the selection, but we think it's a very important one. And the feedback that we're getting from the departments who've really uh, driven this as a pilot, HMRC and the Department for Education, is that candidates those who succeed in getting the vacancy, filling the vacancy, uh, those who participate in the process, the hiring managers um, and others involved are very, uh, are very positive about this, uh, about this change. Um, we're going to be rolling that out across the civil service in phases over the coming months. We expect that most people will be covered by April 2019. Um, and we see this, I think very importantly to say, this will take time to embed. It requires a level of line management capability and interviewing selection, which is very, um, it's very important that they have. And so there is an extensive investment in making sure that line managers who are using this are, are well-trained. Um, but we do need to be able to trust line managers to take these type of selection uh, decisions. It's linked, particularly through experience and technical expertise, to the questions of functional uh, capability. Uh, and that's a really key point of how we're looking at careers in the civil service. Um, my boss, John Manzoni, uh, has uh, spoken here, uh, spoke in May, about the importance of functional leadership and functional structures and how they're transforming uh, the civil service. And IFG's been a very uh, strong advocate and supporter, supporter of that. Um, what are functions? Well, functions are sets of common cross-departmental activity. Um, I think you view a professional as a person. A function is a set of activities. Um, and they're about making sure the right expertise is available to be deployed in the most effective way. And again, um, the task that we're undergoing at the moment through UXIT is presenting um, a really good opportunity to show the value of that uh, approach. It means that there are high standards set centrally um, or collectively is probably a better way to put that, strong cross-departmental working and also ways of bridging people from inside and outside uh, the civil service and setting the expectations about what we, we want from people in those, uh, in those important professional roles. Um, and it does really, we believe, help to define uh, career pathways and make it much clearer to people how they can pursue a career in their, in their particular professional area. So if I just take my own, uh, rather parochially, my own area of HR, uh, we have a professional body, the Chartered Institute of Personal Development. Um, they have a very 
good set of an evolving set of international standards, which we have built our civil service career pathways um, on the back of, and continue to contribute to and uh, and evolve. And that um, that again is available on gov.uk because I think one of the things we feel is that it's very important that these are as open source as possible for people outside the civil service to see and actually to critique uh, as they um, as they evolve. Um, and we're following the model actually that's been set by other professions and um, I could take many examples but one which I think is probably the most mature in this area is the project delivery profession Uh, and again Tony Meggs the leader of that profession has has spoken here and you'll you'll have heard what he has to say on on the importance of that profession and professional skill in that area Um, we're talking here about those involved in the delivery of projects managing portfolios uh, managing programs Um, and they're supported by um, what you need, I think, to have effective career pathways, which is defined view of what the professional standards are and a community of people who are going to help people move along those pathways as colleagues, as line managers, um, as trainers and developers and uh, understand what experiences as well as technical skills they need to progress their career in that, uh, in that area. And I think, as Yazan has referred to, what we are also going to see is increasingly people who are going into the general management leadership roles in the civil service moving through these professions um, in, in a more fungible uh, way. Um, and that means people from HR moving into finance, project delivery, etc. So I think one shouldn't view this as silo-like. It just means defining what the skills are and showing how you can make a, make a career moving either up that, up that or, th- or through them. Um, the... Uh, the career paths um, give an opportunity to build uh, deep experience. Um, an example of that in the context of projects, of course, is the Major Projects Leadership uh, Academy. And this is uh, a programme delivered with the Side Business School in Oxford. Um, it delivers a very comprehensive training programme for uh, people who are going to become uh, SROs for government projects. Um, and it's uh, actually the only only programme of its kind uh, in the world so far. There's a lot of international interest in it. Um, and I think it's quite telling to see, you know, how do you measure the impact of something like that? So we knew that before that project was uh, set up and we'd put significant numbers of people through it, just 30% of major projects were expected to deliver on time. But now we can expect an 85% success rate. So this is a, a very important part of uh, what it means to build capability and effective careers. And um, that links actually to uh, the broader issue of, of senior leadership capability generally. In terms of learning and development, um, that is something we need to make sure is available to, uh, to everybody in their professional areas. Um, if I take another example, the government digital service has an academy which is uh, actively building capability in core digital skills, but also in areas like agile working and uh, in, uh, in new areas around uh, automation and um, artificial intelligence and cognitive uh, technologies. And uh, the final example is commercial, which is uh, an absolutely critical function and where, interestingly, we see more emphasis, um, perhaps in some other functions, in taking a view about what the professional minimum criteria are to be able to call yourself a commercial professional and uh, I think that the selection mechanisms and panels that have been put in place there, rather like the ones which conclude the MPLA graduation are, um, are very rigorous and uh, I think uh, really world, uh, world class Now we've also wanted to make sure that every civil servant has the opportunity to learn I think one of the characteristics of leading organisations now globally is that uh, learning is highly democratic and people can pursue their learning interests in as flexible a way as possible Um, We have with our partner KPMG uh, set up we believe a a very very comprehensive curriculum and one where actually after a number of of years we worked out that actually we had to take the plunge and make sure that all digital learning could be available to everybody free at point of use and that has seen a tremendous uplift in the learning in all areas that people are uh, are undertaking which is not to say it replaces face-to-face learning and workshops and action learning and those other important things but at least means that um, you know, a, very, a very important part of their, of their learning can be accessed really anytime, uh, any time um, anywhere and at the right pace 
And next year we have the learning platform for government coming online, which will take that to an even uh, more advanced level, including uh, the ability to do skills assessment um, as well. Now, linked to, um, link to skills, of course, is the, is the talent pipeline and making sure that we have people moving through into uh, senior leadership roles. I talked about the civil service fast stream. Uh, that is helping supply that pipeline. It is only one source, uh, but it's an important one. It's a very uh, powerful brand in the marketplace. Um, it's second in the Times top 100 graduate employers. Uh, it's the largest graduate recruiter uh, in the UK by volume and across all sectors. It's an interesting question as to whether the important role that the fast stream plays, uh, whether, you know, the extent to which we are at peak fast streamer, um, because we have other channels coming online, like apprenticeships, that we need to uh, need to develop as well. But um, it's a very important way of making sure that we've got the right leaders and a supply of leaders for the uh, future civil service and the people who will be leading in the um, in the 2040s and 2050s. Um, just to give an, an indication of scale, we inducted 900 uh, centrally managed fast streamers uh, through our base camps um, this autumn. We actually have uh, the, the balance of those uh, uh, around 1,500 fast streamers are in professions and functions, um, and uh, that's also a very important innovation that we've seen. Uh, and they're coming into uh, a multi-year program that will develop into uh, senior leadership roles. And one of the important changes as we've reviewed the fast stream, and we're, we're doing that at the moment, is to recognise that it is an accelerated uh, development programme. Um, now, we know that uh, once, but obviously it's not the only source, so once people have come through that, we also need to make sure that we've got other programmes which can bring people through uh, as well, um, whether it's the future leader scheme for people getting ready to go into the SCS or whether it's um, the senior leader scheme for people who are in, um, in the SCS to go to director and so on and, and at every level. And this is a really important part of the uh, diversity and inclusion agenda I mentioned at the outset. So we've... Um, We've actually been very pleased to see the changes that we've made to those schemes to make them self-selecting, i.e. people can not self-nominating, so people can go into them themselves uh, without having to be picked. Uh, the fact that we have uh, looked very carefully at the psychometrics underpin it and the selection process. Um, and from that, we've now, this year, uh, had 16.5% of the intake um, uh, for the, uh, the Future Leader Scheme, the largest of those, um, at, uh, at, from ethnic minorities compared to 8.2% uh, in 2017. And in terms of those with a disability, going to 8.4% um, from 6.3% in 2017. And we think those are quite significant ways of driving the, sort of the, the, the pipeline who will go into our main, um, into those senior roles and help us meet our, our commitment and targets. So important ways, I think, in which the way in which we're shifting recruitment is making us, we hope, more effective, but also contributing to this inclusion objective. Um, now, uh, we also uh, need to make sure that we are developing people once they're in that senior echelon. And uh, for this, we've launched the Civil Service Leadership Academy, which is uh, just about one year old. It's described uh, by um, those who are sort of overseeing it as, uh, as a bud that needs to be, uh, needs to be encouraged. And uh, we, you know, we're at very early stages with it. Um, but it's a way of... Um, really making sure that we deal, deal with effective and develop effective leaders and make sure that we are producing leaders who reflect the values in our leadership statement, inspiring, confident and empowering. And one of the biggest changes in this programme has been to have um, a very much a focus on leaders teaching leaders. The curriculum is built around uh, sharing the experience of, of civil servants, whether they're functional specialists, senior leaders, permanent secretaries. And that's got us to the point where of the around 4,500 senior civil servants in the past year, we've put around half through, uh, through that uh, in some form. And that includes parliamentary training, it includes legal training, HR training, just making sure people have the breadth of, um, of expertise that uh, we believe they need to do those jobs effectively. So, uh, looking ahead, um, what, is, uh, what is next? Um, there are uh, many challenges which we're, uh, I believe, responding to. Um, 
but really we share the challenges that all global workforces have and global organisations and so I would put down there the, uh, the potential and the need to respond to um, as I've mentioned, artificial intelligence and automotive technologies as a, a massively important area for us to equip ourselves with the skills to manage uh, well and drive good public service uh, delivery, efficacy and efficiency. Um, and uh, there are many opportunities for us to capitalise on automation and change the way we deliver public services at pace. We can perhaps talk about, a bit about that in the, um, uh, in the questions. Um, and it's something which has been looked at at a, at a cross-government level, whether it's through um, artificial intelligence and the work that was announced in the budget on that, or actually also driving um, what we think of as the more sort of agricultural end of, of automation that make people's jobs, frankly, more interesting and uh, take the robot out of the human, which I think is a good way to describe it. Um, the, the challenge, though, is to make sure that people know how to embrace that technology and to be able to coach them in how to use it effectively. But I still say, as I've said here before, that I believe that what will happen with artificial intelligence, cognitive technology, automation, is that for public servants particularly, it will be empowering, it will be skill-enhancing, um, and it won't be uh, replacing. And that's a, a very, uh, that's very, it's a very exciting opportunity for us. So finally, um, keeping up with uh, those technological developments uh, is important, making sure that we've got a workforce which is technically uh, sophisticated. Um, also, you need to recognise that the, uh, the relationship between uh, people and the technology they're using sets standards for the way in which they expect to interact with um, their, the workplace and uh, making sure that we are recognising changes in the way in which people want to work, the move away from the nine-to-five uh, working pattern, really using this to create um, an exciting environment in which people can uh, drive, their, um, drive their careers. The, um, the final thing I wanted to mention was uh, the work that we're doing on the, uh, on the measurement of inclusion. And we were very... And it's interesting to see how these areas connect. So if I take the fast stream, we knew that we were insufficiently diverse from a socioeconomic background perspective in the fast stream. And with the review that came from uh, the Bridge Group, we made extensive changes which have improved, we believe, the fast stream overall. But we did that alongside um, other employers to look at how do you actually measure socioeconomic background because there wasn't a defined measurement of it. Um, and now we're moving on to the next phase, we feel, which is how do you measure inclusion? If we set our objective of being the most inclusive employer by 2020, what would that look like? How would we know that we'd got there? And uh, it's something that we're very keen to do collectively. So working with the CIPD and with other employers and really as many people as want to be involved, um, we're keen to look at that. And where we are moving with that is towards, for example, looking at maturity models and what metrics will drive the way in which we measure, uh, measure inclusion and making sure that all our working practices are uh, as inclusive as possible. It's a very important uh, commitment for us. So um, a, lot is, uh, a lot is happening. Um, you'll probably have gathered that quite a lot of it is technologically dependent, so we need to put in place new systems. We need to help line managers and individual candidates and people planning their careers, help them take ownership um, at, all, at all levels, make sure they're equipped with the skills uh, to do that. And I think through that, uh, get to a place where people know they can join the civil service and have a, a really great career in whatever professional discipline uh, they choose uh, to have it in. And know that the workplace they're in is uh, inclusive and high-performing. And I hope... Um, we enter a period where people can look at what's happening in the civil service, feel a collective ownership of it across the UK, and that we'll see good practices that we're developing being shared out uh, and used, not just more broadly in the public service, but also out in, um, in industry and in the private sector uh, as well. Thank you. Thanks. So I'm going to come to questions quite quickly because I know that there'll be um, lots of things you want to ask, but there were just a couple of things sure, that please, I wanted to yeah. pick up on first, Rupert. So, you know, you talked about the importance of um, creating meaningful career paths for people in the functions, and this is something that the Institute has, has written about before as well. But I wonder if there's still a perception that getting to the top of the civil service 
um, still tends to involve being part of the policy profession and involves moving around quite a lot. Now, there are obviously exceptions to this. We had John Thompson mm. um, in the building just a few weeks ago. Um, but how do you think we get to a place where anyone can get to the top in any specialism um, and indeed can get to the top by building up expertise rather than having to move around a lot? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great question. I, th- I think that there, there are several aspects to this. One, one is that um, on the first point, there's a bit of myth-busting that needs to happen. So how do you, uh, with, with all this, and supplies actually also in terms of diversity and underrepresented groups, you, know, you need to have clear role models that people can look at and see um, that there is someone who has followed a particular path uh, to, to, to get to uh, the level they want to, they want to reach. Uh, and it's really interesting looking at the current population of permanent secretaries. So um, you mentioned John Thompson, who started an apprentice, became a finance professional, and uh, is now uh, has been permanent secretary of, uh, of two massive departments. Um, when you look around and see what people, what, what their professional identities are, um, it's it is interesting because uh, you could ask uh, one permanent secretary I know uh, would, would talk about this would be Claire Moriarty. She started you know, from the finance profession. Uh, you've got people like Melanie Dawes who describe themselves as economists. So uh, I think what we're seeing is that with, um, with the creation of you know, the analytical function, the finance function, even HR mm-hmm. and, and others, um, it's becoming, uh, I think, easier to see and identify these role, these role models. Now, policy has a hugely important part in that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a very important part, particularly in the senior civil service. Uh, I think you will see, I hope, people go into that profession from, uh, from other areas too and move out as well mm-hmm. into, into functional areas. And uh, we actually submitted our evidence to uh, the PACAC uh, a few months ago in their um, review of learning in the civil service. <laughs> And we said, well, you know, this, this concept of the generalist versus the specialist is a bit misleading because actually you know, everyone starts in a specialism. The generalist fast stream is really the policy and operational delivery fast stream. In fact, we're looking at the moment at how we describe it. Um, and how do you then move up from that and then start to acquire the generalist leadership skills that you need to be doing those biggest, biggest roles at the top? And what about the question of moving around? Because I think it is the case that there are still extremely high levels of turnover, particularly in some departments. Um, and one of the things that's driving that is a perception that you have to move quickly in order to move up. Um, yeah, so, 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 yeah so, so I think we've, you know, um, we're, we're, we're on the record in, 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 in talking about that. I, I, I think that one of the advantages, if I sort of reference it back to success profiles, is we're, we're acknowledging that uh, you do need to have um, enough experience as you move through your career. And you, you can't move too quickly or you won't gain that experience. You need to know what it is you're acquiring. So I think that's an important part of it. Um, equally, uh, there are other factors. There are remuneration factors that need to drive that. And actually, as professions take a more, as, as we've said in our Senior Salary Review Board evidence, take a more um, direct view of um, interdepartmental movement, they, have a view on, um, they can have a view in terms of how... Uh, how pay should evolve as people move through, uh, move through the system. The one thing I would say is that when you look at our turnover, so this is people leaving the civil service, it is lower than you'd expect to see in the private sector. The real issue, I think, as you've referenced, is people moving between departments. Exactly. That has two aspects. So to some extent, people are moving too, might be moving too rapidly. But equally, um, one, of our abil- one of the things that has given us the ability to respond as rapidly as we have to um, the task of EU exit has been the agility that that, that that brings. And that's an important point in that EU exit has actually allowed us to do things much more collectively. You know, the first civil service-wide campaigns for policy and project delivery, um, the ability to move people around in a, in a consistent way, whether it's fast streamers or specialists in different disciplines. I'm glad you picked up on the EU exit because that was going to be, um, be my next question. And so when we looked at some departments in particular, say DEXU mm, or DIG, mm. you know, you're looking at rates of people moving... 35, 40% of departments moving around um, a year. Now, Brexit's a really, it's a highly technical um, project. It's got very short timelines. I mean, can we afford for people working on that area to be moving around that quickly when we know that on the EU side, people know their areas inside out, they're sticking with them for, for years and years? How can we make sure that we're not at a disadvantage? Well, I think this comes down to uh, another fundamental part of the system which we're putting in place, which is uh, workforce planning mm. and being able to move people um, planfully. 
So I think in a way it's a bit like the, the question of um, you've got turnover and you've got regretted turnover and regretted losses. I think there's a question. So I think in a way the corollary that just occurs to me is unplanned movement. That is actually probably what we should be. That's what we're trying to avoid. Yeah. And, and I think they again the um, the role of the profession as something which as a, as a as a leadership group for a group of professionals who can take a view on how fast people should be moving through roles, what experience they need, is something that is relatively new in some areas and we need to make use of. And I should say the policy profession, the standards which uh, Chris Wormold, as the head of that profession, has developed uh, with the policy community are really a great example of being very clear about what skills people need as they move through their policy careers. Okay, I'm going to um, come to the room now uh, because we've only got about 15, 20 minutes left. I'm going to take questions in threes. Um, so we've got one over here. Hi there, really interesting stuff. My name's Adam Cooper, uh, ex-civil servant, GSR. Um, I'm now at uh, UCL, um, heading up the Director of Education. We're doing an MPA in Science, Technology and Engineering Public Policy. And um, it's related to the role of universities, really, is my question in, in this space. You didn't really mention sort of external training partners, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in particular, when you think about the inclusion agenda, um, engineering is a classic example where engineering training at university level is heavily uh, male-oriented. So, um, you know, if you're trying to inc- get greater inclusion, um, to what extent are you looking to work with, with partners like, you know, universities and other training uh, centres in order to make the, the flow in? Um, the attract, you know, those you're attracting um, better placed uh, to fulfil those inclusion agenda. Good question. Um, Julian McRae, uh, King's College London. Um, I, really interesting, uh, again, um, sort of presentation, Rupert, and uh, it's great to see the sort of consistency of the drive that's going on inside this, if you like, on the supply side of how do we organise bringing people through their careers, bringing people into the civil service, and the, the change is very welcome with this focus on functions. Um, the question I had relates a bit to your planning part at the end. Um, in some of the early work I think the Institute for Government did, it sort of said, well, actually, the real problem is a little bit of a demand problem for some of these skills, is do are the senior leaderships of departments really understand, can they articulate the type of skills and capability they really need, given what they're trying to deliver for the government? Um, I was just wondering whether that planning would feed through to the single departmental plans that round that's the basis for government planning at the moment, where it sets out the priorities for departments, whether we'd start to see within those some assessment of the type of capability that would be needed, and you know, even further, I don't know if the government will put this in the public domain, but how much of that capability do we realistically have, given the uh, sense of slightly overload that might go on inside government departments yeah. that need yeah. prioritisation? Thank you. Uh, Hi, Rupert. Sue Street, a former civil servant. Um, I'm not sure how you're going to package this question with the others because it's different. It seemed um, that you've got a complete grip on an awful lot of things that need doing, but I'm not sure that relations between ministers and civil servants have ever been worse. So if you look at Windrush or you look at the Brexit negotiations and and many, many other things... I'm just wondering where in all of this um, are we going to redeem that relationship and make sure that ministers and civil servants together earn the trust of each other, the public and the press? Okay. Go, do those three, coming, coming, to, coming to Sue's as well. So um, I, I think the, the question about the relationship between higher education and universities is, is really fascinating. I think it basically... Every profession needs to know who its higher education partners are. Um, And I think the profession which is probably furthest ahead with that is the uh, policy profession. And I think it's quite interesting to see the demand being stimulated in the market to support that, you know, whether it's King's or LSE or Blatnick or any of the other partners. And, and, And that includes not just the um, the flow of people in, but also the joint work on courses, and we see that happening, um, and training of civil servants. And also um, the fact that we are a research base which can be used. You know, we have many sort of control groups that can be used to 
uh, to test and explore, and we've been doing that uh, in the HR area uh, as well. So I think it's very important. I think there's a particular issue around uh, STEM and around science and engineering. Uh, we have uh, Patrick Valance, who's joined us as our new uh, government scientific advisor uh, from GSK. He's there's a big push building on Mark Walport's work before on how do we really get the science and engineering professions properly embedded in government. Um, and that's something I think we'll see more work on over the coming year. I can say now, our view, um, not least because my boss, John Manzoni, is an engineer and he keeps drawing my attention to the fact, uh, you know, we don't have enough people with engineering backgrounds uh, and science backgrounds in senior roles and we need to push that. So very happy to talk about that as well uh, offline. It's really, really interesting. Um, I think the, uh, the question, what, I mentioned the EU exit has been a great accelerator. One of the things that has really demonstrated is, you know, you can, support, you can sort the supply side out and then you need to think very carefully about how you articulate demand and how you then match the two up. So it's been very helpful in that regard. So I completely agree. And getting, you know, part of what good workforce planning is, is helping people understand exactly what skills they need in their operating model. I sort of view it on a maturity basis. The, 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 the lowest level of maturity is I want that person. Then you go to I want a person like that person then actually I want this job filled. And then actually you get a sophisticated level of what activities do I need to be fulfilled and what's the best way to fulfill them. And that's, the, um, that's part of the capability building we need to do across government. But I think the other thing which we probably don't give enough profile to is, uh, and I mentioned learning and development, is how that is a system-shifting um, uh, mechanism. So if I think about parliamentary skills... You know, that's something where, I mean, you'll see in the, you know, the, the, the PACAC carry on uh, secondary legislation and other things. You know, that was something we felt we needed to really push. Elizabeth Gardner is our um, parliamentary council. You know, she has driven, using the tools available, an increase in that, uh, in that capability. We're going to say, see the same thing in international working uh, and other things. So you can hire people to do things and you can also train them to do things. And that will become really critical when we talk about automation and how we take advantage of new technology. Um, and particularly when you think about the ability to apply some of the new technologies like machine learning and other things to the, the traditional areas like policy, preparation of legislation, etc. And finally, on Sue's question, um, I, so my, my experience is actually quite different, I have to say, and uh, maybe I'm very fortunate with this, but, but I think that it's been really great to see uh, the support that uh, we have had consistently uh, from ministers in the Cabinet Office to this agenda and to driving it. It's also been important to listen to some of the frustrations that ministers have had over things like the rapidity of turnover uh, and not having people... You know, with the experience they need to uh, to do these things, um, so I think the the other important aspect, and this is something that we try and inculcate from the very start, whether it's uh, in the fast stream or at any point really, is um, you know making people understand the environment in which we operate, which is you know the civil servant is the, you know they are serving the governments of the day in, in the nation that they're in. And that they are um, also operating within the, the, the parliamentary uh, parliamentary construct. So, um, I think helping people at all levels, and perhaps we un- we underinvest in this, making the system visible to people earlier is is important. And we we had some very interesting conversations with the PACAC and the report that they did with Andrew Kakabadzi a few uh, months ago, which talked about that relationship. Okay, more questions. Yes, here. Hi, my name's uh, Matthew Trimming. I've done various um, bits of work for the Treasury and uh, the Cabinet Office on digital and other things. Um, It's fantastic that you're looking at the sort of enabling power of the uh, HR profession and how all those sort of largely horizontal challenges, cross-departmental, cross-functional challenges, can be... um, served by moving away from competency, looking at those success profiles. It is one thing getting sort of multidisciplinary teams together, but the thing that really makes them successful is whether you've got the right personalities who can actually work in a multidisciplinary way. I think you were starting to sort of touch on it when you talked about being planful. I just wondered if you wanted to say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Thank you. 
Hello, um, my name is Fiona Hoban. Um, I'm, I work for the Cabinet Office, but I'm currently on secondment to the House of Commons, um, an interesting example of raising yeah. parliamentary capability. And I wanted to ask about your views on secondments and what kind of policies, um, and sometimes it just the devil is in the detail, I think, actually, in terms of being able to enable that permeation uh, between uh, the civil service and other parts of the public service or, indeed, industry and charity and so on. Um, sometimes we talk talk as though uh, joining the civil service is, is a job for life. You start in the fast stream and then you, and then you, you, you dead go all the way through. Um, I joined in my 40s, the civil service, and, and I've made uh, benefit from secondments. So I think that's a really, been a really positive thing. from the same company. Hi, I'm Zeynep Bizer. I work for Accenture and I specialize in back office transformation in public sector. Um, I wanted to ask, how would you describe the culture in civil service? Uh, how do the civil servants perceive themselves and what is a peer-to-peer relationship for civil servants? Brilliant. Thank Great. You. Okay, Great question. Sorry. So I'm going to try and to, to, to link those two questions actually because there is a uh, you're getting to the very important question about, uh, about culture and about how people work together in the most effective ways. And um, so I think the first thing to say, uh, being a civil servant of only three years, uh, I think it's one of the most collaborative environments that I have worked in in my career, which is very positive, particularly when you've got a big challenge like the situation we're in at the moment. I think there's... Um, you, you've hit on a really important thing, which is we, we obviously need to build individual capability, but you also need to build the capability for people to uh, work well together in multidisciplinary teams and the best organisations including ones in government the, most, the, the highest performing organisations just do that naturally whether it's in the agencies or in the military or in many parts of government at the moment but it is a, a skill which you can teach people to do and you can certainly encourage and incentivise and so um, I think actually that's part of the reason why the inclusion message is so important um, because uh, you, you want people to, if I take a very you know, basic example, you know, having people in a room, how do you chair a meeting in an inclusive way that pulls everyone in and gets them engaged? We're actually doing some training material on that, which will be released shortly, because we think that's a, an, important, an important way of improving effectiveness. How do you, um, you recognise, from a demand perspective, what skills you actually need in the room? Um, I think some of the case studies of things which have not gone well have been examples where the voice that needed to be in the room, the commercial voice, the finance voice, the technical voice, uh, was not in there. And professions have been hugely helpful. So I think that's a very... um, Teaching people to collaborate is very important. And I I, I wouldn't um, underestimate the the significance of Mark Sedwell's comments about teamwork and impact. And I think that's... I think we're going to see a lot... You know, collaboration and building those skills is going to be very... Uh, very important. I think we're fortunate to be in an environment which is sort of requiring us to do that, which is which is great. And I think the um, we'll see, you know, through through what we're seeing from the engagement scores that we're getting, some really, again, relative to what you know I would see in other parts of the economy, very high engagement levels on on many on many things. And I think one of the interesting things about the environment we're in at the moment is that this is the environment that many civil servants, I think, um, you know pursue their careers for when they can really make a difference and, 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 work, uh, and work effectively for, um, for the people of the UK. And it's, a very, um, it's actually a very uplifting environment to be in from, uh, from that perspective. And on secondments, I think that the, um, uh, that's it, it's really critical. And you've, re- you've referenced something very important now, which is, which is the, um, the wider public service. And I should do a name check here for, for quite a big change which was announced in the budget which I think um, I'd sort of encourage people to look at which is Sir Jerry Grimstone's task force on the centre of public service leadership for which there is now um, a sort of a three year programme of funding and that's aimed at the top level of public service leadership so how do we think about not just a civil service but where it fits relative to the other parts of public service and I think um, we're very conscious that particularly if we hope to achieve the goal of getting more senior roles 
spread around the UK, that people will be able to forge regional public service careers, which will be of which the civil service might be a part, health, local government might might also might also be a part. Um, the, the, um, the the challenging thing is that right now we're in a period of net importing of talent, so we're not doing as much secondment as I would like to do to build capability in the long term. But that will come. That point will come back. I think we've got time for one more round of questions. Um, yes. Yeah? Thanks. Thank you. Um, Adarsh Parekh from Accenture. I'm responsible for our back office transformation business. Um, so it's great to hear you talk about the emerging focus on AI, machine learning, cognitive, robotics, etc. So our experience is that in the private sector, these areas are being embraced very rapidly, but largely through pilots, proofs of concepts, you know, agile things that allow succeed or fail fast. Do you emphasize that those kinds of techniques will be embraced by the civil service? Tom Sass, uh, senior researcher here at IFG. Hi, Rupert. Hi. Um, so just a question about the role of HR in departments. So it's mentioned at the start that uh, in the private sector, we're in the midst of this sort of move from a very sort of operational role, back office role, through to a much more strategic role. Um, and so we noted in a report that we put out a couple of years ago that sort of in, in seven out of 17 departments, HR directors still aren't on the board and sometimes aren't sort of involved enough in top decisions at the top of departments. Um, where would you measure the sort of progress on that agenda? How many de- departments do you think have got sort of really strategic role for HR at the moment? Thank you. Um, Tina Hallett, PwC. Hi. Just a question on um, mental health. I wondered if you could say a bit more about mental health in the workplace. Um, We've focused on it a fair amount recently at PwC, and it's been really helpful in opening up a lot of conversations and um, uh, dispelling any myths or taboos and helping people. Great. So, uh, really, really interesting uh, questions. Uh, Let me me sort of answer them in in, uh, reverse order. So... um, I'm very proud of the way in which the most senior leaders, particularly Jonathan Jones, who's our civil service wellbeing champion, um, uh, and the Treasury Solicitor, and Philip Rutnam, who's our disability champion, have really pushed this. Um, I mean, we've had the Farmer-Stevenson review, which is, um, I think, a really uh, sensible set of recommendations. We really want to be sort of pioneering in what we what we do in that. Now, to, to sort of understand how I, come, how I deal with it strategically, or think about it strategically, um, it's very like diversity and inclusion as a topic, because um, you should be doing it because it's the right thing to do to support people's mental health. And, but if you get the, the line manager that is, that is supportive of people's mental health and well-being, um, like the line manager and process, which is supportive of diverse and inclusive workforces, will be better for everybody and will be a better line manager and a better system. So it's sort of a no-regrets move to push it. Um, there are lots of ways it can manifest, whether it's through mental health first aiders or listeners or helplines, but also really focusing on the preventative aspect. So you know, and this touches on so many things. You know, the, the fact that presenteeism is an inefficient practice, that you want people to take their holidays, to be well-rested. And again, high-performing organisations uh, have that as, as, a, as a feature, I think. And so driving that is, is very important, making sure that um, the managers of managers are looking at what people are, are, are doing and, and checking that their workforce are being well-looked after. And uh, I was actually in a, a meeting with permanent secretaries the other day, and we were talking about you know, the issue of resilience and the Yelk-Dodson curve. So you know, the point that you will build more and more stress in your system, and you might look like you're performing very well, but then there'll be a cliff. And, and once you know that that's a risk, you get, I think, as a manager, get much more attentive to how your team's performing. So it's a very important part of what we're, uh, what we're thinking about. Um, I, I think the, one of the really pleasing things on the point about HR leadership is that you, know, you, want, um, you want the most senior leaders, so in this case the permanent secretaries, to be understanding the importance of people um, as ends, not means... <laughs> But as an important part of their of the system and their and their responsibility and what they're and what they're managing, um, and I think that the um, you know I've talked about this in, in other places. There is a 
what we're seeing with the people agenda is very similar to what happened to the technology agenda, I think, about 15 years ago, where you could not be a very senior leader unless you had a real grip and understanding of all aspects of how do you get the best out of your workforce and your people. Um, we're putting a lot of investment in the, um, the, the, the skills of the HR function. That's why we're working very closely with, with the CIPD. Two things. I think that uh, you know, the you know, many functional areas report into chief operating officers. The important thing is to make sure that, sort of rather, as I said, that the people doing those chief operating officer jobs, you know, and they sh- you sh- many of them should have come up through the HR function. And in fact, we're doing quite a, a program of cross-training to get people dual trained in finance and HR, which is, which is very important. But I'll throw up a bit of a provocation, which is that... Um, I look sort of, because we're just about to put out a piece of work we've done with the um, Institute for Employment Studies in Cranfield about the future of the HR profession, the HR partner, looking at 2030. And I don't know whether, 2030 is probably a bit soon, but at some point we'll ask the question, is there actually an HR profession? Are we looking at the integration of technology, the workplace, property, Facilities, strategy, etc., in a way that actually we're talking about a much more rounded enabling function, particularly between technology uh, and, and HR, because that's becoming very, uh, very, very tightly uh, integrated. And on uh, on AI and uh, machine learning, well, this is really uh, this is fascinating because what we're doing is using the framework that was in the Smith report, uh, which ca- which uh, came out a few months ago. We've we're sort of looking at, um, if I think about sort of the, looking at this new, te- new technology, there's, there's sort of cutting-edge emerging technology which you want to test, um, and really that yeah, somewhere in government that will be being tested. Then there are the ones which you want to commercialise, new things like machine learning, you apply it here, it can be applied somewhere else. And then there are things which are just completely basic things that you need to be deploying, uh, like robotic process automation, wherever you can do it. The great privilege of working in the civil service, I think, is or one of the great privileges, is that almost uniquely we have the opportunity to make these decisions collectively as a sector. So two weeks ago we had a meeting to talk about automation um, with uh, John Thompson, who's the head of the operational delivery profession, the profession in which most civil servants sit, uh, John Manzoni, uh, technologists, operational people from around government, s- doing exactly what you're saying. You know, where should we tr- where should we test, fail fast on this stuff, and get this uh, get this technology deployed, including, for example, uh, in the shared services environment as well. And tying it back to one thing I referenced in, in the speech, you know, one of the things we're looking at is how do you automate the process of um, of maternity and paternity leave, and uh, and doing that through. Um, uh, robotics, voice, etc., so that you can just make it as smooth and easy as possible. So um, it's a very exciting time. Part of it is how do you get people to um, think? If we think back, you know, t- 15 years, what would we like to have been teaching ourselves about digital? So what do we need? What, how do we need to get ourselves ready to take advantage of these technologies when they uh, when they come through? And that's a really, uh, really exciting thing. Yeah, okay, I know there are lots more questions, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to draw to a close as we're just after half past. Um, so I just want to say thank you to Yazad and to Oracle. Rupert, thank you to you for you. an open and really fascinating discussion. And thanks to everybody in the room for an excellent set of questions. This is not the last in our series. There are going to be more in our series on functional leadership in the new year. So please come and join us for those as well. Thank, thank you very much. You.